Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. So this is our final week in a five-week series on the theme, Hope Unfettered. And we have been uh, walking through different sections of the Bible uh, in order to explore this theme. And today, we come to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Uh, For this Sunday, I was able to interview the Reverend Dr. Kara Lyons-Pardue. Uh, She is an ordained pastor in the Church of the Nazarene and professor of New Testament at Point Loma Nazarene University. And uh, as some of you may recall, we had planned to have her lead a class on the book of Revelation, but we actually, of course, postponed that uh, because of the pandemic. And I thought that I might begin today by giving you a brief background Uh, about Dr. Lyons-Pardue, but then I got to the website with the curriculum vitae on her at Point Loma Nazarene University, and there was just no way I could do her any justice. And so if you would like to sort of ratify her credentials to be offering us some really good background and good information on the book of Revelation, I invite you, just go to uh, Point Loma Nazarene University, uh, the website, and look her up, and you will be duly impressed. Now, I'm going to read, to start us off, a passage from Revelation, the first uh, five uh, verses of chapter 21, and then this interview is going to be about 30 minutes. I urge you to listen really carefully because we begin with some background about how Revelation has been read throughout history, and in the end, some very moving reflections on where we find uh, the message of hope in Revelation. So here is uh, Revelation uh, Revelation 21. Sorry, I uh, went to the wrong space. Revelation 21, uh, the first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And so the first question I asked was, How has the book of Revelation been read and interpreted throughout Christian history? Great 
question. And I think um, it needs to be asked because a lot of Christians grow up perhaps just hearing one way of interpreting it and thinking that is the one Christian way. But across the course of um, Christian history and even across churches today, there's a lot of variation. And so, um, but this is where I need a whiteboard. This is where my teacher self comes in. Um, and so I grouped the, the various ways. And when we're talking about the interpretive um, kind of methodologies or lenses for revelation, um, we're particularly talking about what do we do with the strange symbols that we encounter? How do we make sense of the events and visions um, that take place? And so we have categorizations for how various interpreters do it. So here we go. I've got my, uh, I hope that's coming up the right way for that you. Is. is it backwards? Okay. I think that's right. I think I'm reading good. it right. <laughs> okay, good, good. So um, I grouped these first three together. These aren't the only three options. I actually have another card over here, okay? But these three um, go together in my mind because they have the same baseline conviction about how the symbols, the figures, the events that take place in Revelation, how they correspond to our world. and. For each of these views, the preterist, the historicist, and the futurist, they understand there to be really a one-to-one -one analogy, right, between the symbols and the events as we encounter them in Revelation and how it will play out in the scope of our world. And really, it's almost um, perceived as a sort of checklist. That is, like if the first beast that um, has a mortal wound in its head. If that's Emperor Nero, then that's always Emperor Nero. Like that's used up, check it off your list. And so kind of idea that um, we're looking for the fulfillment of each of these symbols. Where they differ, as you know, um, is when they think this takes place. And so for the preterist view, um, these interpreters will say that the symbols, the visions, the events that are in reference and revelation um, all took place within the lifespan or within the kind of living memory of the author of Revelation and his immediate intended audience. Okay, and so all of these symbols, with the exception of like, you know, the new heaven and new earth, right? Those things are obviously a future hope. But for, for the beast, for um, Babylon, for uh, all the other symbolic things, the various horsemen, etc., those would have taken place or th there would have been some sort of referent in the minds of the author and his audience um, within their own time. So that's where um, equating the beast with Nero, for instance, comes from the mortal wound. Oh, Nero died from a suicide um, with a head wound. Ta-da, there you have it solved. And so you're not looking throughout the scope of history to find those connections. You're looking in the ancient world, okay. the first century or prior. Um, the historicist um, says, sure, the first um, beast might have indeed been Nero, but they're looking at a broader scope of history to find the fulfillment, the one-for-one -one correlation between these symbols. Mm -hmm. And so while the first beast might have been Nero, uh, proponents of the historicist interpretation might say, well, but the second beast, I think that's Adolf Hitler, for instance. Mm -hmm. you know? And so they're looking across a wider scope of history to locate the fulfillment of these symbols. And the final one, the futurist, and this is one that many Christians, particularly in the United States, are familiar with, or if you've encountered the Left Behind series, it primarily takes a futurist um, lens where it's looking for the fulfillment, the one-for-one -one correlation of these symbols in the future. And so it's kind of like um, a ticking timeline mm. once, for instance, the first seal. So they're looking for an indication, ooh, has the first seal been opened? They're looking for that. And then everything is going to kind of unravel from that point. But the 
but they're looking to the future to find the one for one correlation. Okay. But do you see how like all of these then understand the symbols to be functioning in a really similar I, way? I love it because I haven't heard it put that way. So that's great. That's helpful. Okay. And so then we kind of have a paradigm shift when we come to this other mode. The idealist kind of interpretation would say that revelation isn't a kind of checklist that you're trying to find who is the first beast or who is the whore of Babylon or something like that, that you're not looking um, to identify. Instead, revelation is painting a picture. It's setting a mood. It's casting emotions. Mm -hmm. And so it's not trying to tell you um, that each of these symbols will be unveiled, but instead to give you a sort of vision of what the world looks like from a divine perspective. So mm -hmm. the ideal term then is like, this is, um, the mode in which the world functions. And so sure there are analogies between the beasts and Nero, Domitian, Hitler, Stalin, you name it, right? Mm -hmm. um, because this is the way the world works, that evil seems to have power, evil seems to be triumphing, it seems to be unable to be stopped and the righteous are the ones who suffer. And so an idealist interpretation would be like, of course there are analogies in our world because this is painting a picture of the world from God's point of view. And I only include in, in, in brackets here, eclectic, because there has been a move within interpret, interpretation of Revelation to say that we, while it seems like, for instance, this view and this are incompatible, um, to, to recognize the value of a bit of mixing and to recognize the futuristic. I, I spoke of the new heaven and new earth. Mm -hmm. I think many of us who are interpreting Revelation are hoping um, and trusting that there is a, a future in which God's triumph is ultimate, right? And so we're not gonna say, oh, that's not just an, an idea mm -hmm. of what um, might happen, but uh, we're expecting this future reality. So there. Great, gosh, thank you for that summary. So, so uh, you know, you, you referred to the history, right? So who wrote Revelation? What was going on at the time it was written it, it, that the author, you know, was may have been dealing with? Yeah. So the author refers to himself as John and um, he calls himself a brother. Uh, he refers to his work as prophecy several times throughout. And so, um, but there has been some debate in the history of Christian interpretation about who precisely this John is. A lot of early interpreters understood this to be John, Jesus's disciple, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, you know, mm -hmm. that we encounter, um, who is connected with the authorship of the fourth gospel of John and the Johannine epistle. And so um, often revelation has been grouped within Johannine literature. There's lots of really good reasons for that. Um, the use of dualistic imagery and things like that. Mm -hmm. There's, it's not without cause. It's not just because the name John is there. Um, but what's really fascinating, what a lot of scholars, myself included, would note is that um, revelation mentions the 12 apostles. The 12 is a significant symbolic mm. number. Um, not just for the 12 tribes of Israel, but also the 12 apostles, a sort of reconstitution of Israel. And when those scenes in which there are the 12 mentioned, um, the author doesn't seem to ever include himself. And so uh, most scholars like me would say that this is an otherwise unknown prophet named John. Um, it's written in his real name. There's no reason to doubt like, hmm, could his name have been John? Yeah, it was. Um, but, and I guess I should mention that a lot of literature that we find like this, and we're gonna to turn to apocalyptic literature, but um, 
is sometimes written in false names. Um, that's very common, but there's no reason to think that here. This is a John, he doesn't make a lot of claims about himself. Um, so this is someone who was a person of influence within these churches in Asia Minor that get addressed. And I would just, you asked about the situation. Um, there's some debate about whether this takes place during the reign and the initial violent persecution of Christians, particularly in Rome under Emperor Nero, which would have been in the 60s ADCE, um, or whether it's in written in the 90s under the reign of Emperor Domitian. Um, I count myself among the camp, along with, you know, Irenaeus and lots of ancient um, uh, corroboration that this is in the 90s. So it's a bit later. Um, Nero is very much looming in the backs of their minds um, as the persecutor of the church. But, um, but one thing that Domitian is known for is for escalating um, the imperial cult. And this was basically mm. the ways that um, Christians around the, not Christians, but um, residents of the empire kind of showed themselves to be um, patriotic and also rightly respectable. And so there would be shrines set up around major cities around the Greco-Roman world uh, in which like, say you're just like a blacksmith, but if you're part of the blacksmith guild in town, and if you get the business that comes to the blacksmith in town, then guess what? You're going to have to show up at the imperial cult and, you know, light, light a votive offering and say a few prayers, praising Rome. And um, Christians, for the most part, were excluded because of their refusal to do this. And Domitian really heightened. Not only did he want Rome in general to be praised, but he wanted himself to be revered as a kind of living God. And mm -hmm. so um, there is a sense that in various pockets, it varied geographically and regionally, um, that this really escalated under the Emperor Domitian. And so the author and his audience are anticipating this real kind of crackdown and suffering, whether it's physical or economic persecution that's going to come um, because of their refusal to participate in the imperial cult. Ah, good Romans, yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. So you'd be excluded from the commerce of the day if you. Oh um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so given you know, I've told my congregation, uh, you know, both Calvin and and Luther didn't want much to do with Revelation, you know, so they don't write commentaries on this. Yeah. I don't think, and maybe Calvin did, but um, given the historical context, and you, you know, you're you collected yourself with a group of scholars. Um, what, uh, you know, what is the, the way that you find most appropriate for reading Revelation? Yeah, I mean, this is a big answer, and I, and I think I'll probably have to return to it in some of the subsequent questions, but sure. I think that it's really important to recognize the genre of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And so we don't read revelation asking the same questions that we ask of a gospel we don't read it asking the same questions we might of paul's letters now that's not to say that there's not apocalyptic symbolism mm -hmm. and worldview in those places there actually is and i think it's really helpful to note those connections but we recognize that this is symbolic literature that was not unique in its day um, it's not unique even in the canon. If we look at the second half of Daniel, we encounter mm -hmm. really um, some of our earliest evidence of apocalyptic literature. So that symbols are meant to convey ideas um, and that it would be a mistake. In fact, it would be really limiting to this text 
to take them literally. And that brings with it the second point. So with an eye to genre and also remembering the function of scripture, I find that a lot of Christians read Revelation and because we're unfamiliar with this symbolic universe, we're unfamiliar with this sort of image rich literature, um, that we get caught up in the oh what are these locusts that you know seem to fly and and we interpret it through the lens of our own world and our own experience and i think christians have always done that okay so in on one hand fine that's part of why um some of these major christian scholars throughout history have been allergic to it they're like whoa we're so embedded in our own times it's hard to interpret this appropriately mm -hmm. but if our experience and our world is the be all and end all, if it is the lens through which we find meaning in revelation, we have to recognize scripture is written in such a way so that the spirit makes it present to all generations. The mm -hmm. spirit activates it for all people. And so if we're the only ones, if our experience of our technology, if our um, worldview is the only place in which this particular reading of, of revelation could have made any sense whatsoever, mm -hmm. then you have to wonder why the spirit preserved it beyond these, I mean, why it was ever written to these seven churches in mm -hmm. Asia Minor, if they couldn't understand whatever helicopters being envisioned or whatever, um, and why it would have been retained at great cost to the Christians who copied and preserved these texts. Why would they have ever kept it if it made no sense to them? And it's really, when you interrogate that a little further, it's a really self-interested, self-centered way of reading scripture that we have to name, recognize, know that that's a temptation, but also that can't be the limitation of what scripture can mean. And so in light of that, I do think that an idealist reading of Revelation is most appropriate for scripture to be what scripture is, for mm -hmm. it to show the way that God for all times, for people in all kinds of cultures, not just our own, um, to encounter uh, what the world looks like, the the promise that don't worry, God sees the evil being done. You who are suffering, you are, it is not in vain. That sort of message is an ideal for how God always operates relative to the world. And so I think that's, um, that is my primary way of wanting to interpret revelation. Mm -hmm. Um, this might be a good place to also say when we are interpreting symbols, um, revelation has more, references and allusions to the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. Mm. Um, they are not always cited in the way that you might be familiar with in Matthew or in Hebrews where, you know, it's like specifically recalling Abraham did this. Um, but the, the symbolic universe in which it dwells is in reference to the Old Testament. And so when we see the four creatures around the throne, we're not just thinking, hmm, what does a lion mean to me? But instead we're going to look for the symbolism and the ways in which those images function in the Old Testament first and foremost. And I think with those guardrails, um, we can really read Revelation in a way that is, yes, pertinent to our time. We, we have to read it that way, but not so locked into our time that we are kind of the gatekeepers of its meaning for all time. Right. All right, I get, I get you. So that's that leads me right into this thing. I, I, I was as a, I think I was a teenager. I had a buddy. We thought we'd read through Revelation, and we, you know, we just spent time conjuring, you know, in our deep, 
deeply sophisticated way, um, you know, who people were, like, who is the Antichrist? And, you know, how do we figure out who's the beast by figuring out the number? And are we in the end times? And, and is that, you know, it, it, what do you think the writer of Revelation actually, you know, meant? You said the harlot, uh, you know, and all of this, in Babylon. What, what, how do you interpret that? Yeah. Well, let me, I, I want to first say that I think your response of like wanting to dig in and figure these out is one side of the continuum. The other side of the continuum of like Christian young people is me. I grew up very immersed in church and in um, scripture. I spent a lot of time reading the Bible and I had somehow intuited um, that revelation was too scary um, too difficult to understand i had sort of absorbed this idea that no that i you shall not pass like i could <laughs> not go to that last book of the new testament which is the other side of this spectrum but i think equally unhealthy um if if i might be confessional here that um that if our treatments of revelation either make us the absolute interpreter and kind of the um the the ones who have the knowledge to unlock the key exclusively uh, on one end or on my end, make us fearful of scripture and, and not recognizing that this is meant to be good and encouraging news. Mm -hmm. If we read it in a way in which this is um, meant to convey harm or fear, then we've likewise done a disservice to this yeah. book. And so I think Christians can fall, really, we have a tough time sticking in that tension between those two. And so this is where I wanted to say a little bit more about the genre of apocalypse. Oh, I forgot I had another card earlier, but we, we've passed this by. Um, <laughs> but here's this one. So the, the word um, where our title for Revelation even comes from is from this Greek word, apocalypsis. Um, and it's in the first line. So it comes from the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and this Greek word apocalypsis means revelation, but in the sense of uh, an unveiling, something that was formerly unknowable that is now being disclosed, um, probably to a limited group of people, those who have kind of the key to understanding. In this instance, it's the believers in Jesus Christ, right? Those mm -hmm. are the ones. Um, but like I mentioned, Daniel is a biblical book that has a sub substantial portion that is apocalyptic, but outside of the, um, the canonized scripture that we as Protestants read, there are a lot of apocalyptic books. So there's first Enoch, there's um, fourth Ezra, there's second Baruch, there's um, lots of New Testament apocalypse, the apocalypse of Peter. That's a, a fairly scary one. Yeah. Um, there's all sorts of apocalypses. So this was a known um, genre of literature in the ancient Near East, particularly in Jewish um, mm -hmm. settings. And so um, part of how we need, I think, or at least we need to learn from people who have done this is to do some comparisons because suddenly when we read Revelation in, in a cultural context, we recognize like, oh, the things that we thought were unique or uniquely troubling are part of the way that this highly symbolic literature, this highly dualistic literature um, communicates. And so Revelation abides in this symbolic universe in which um, the conviction is that the forces of good and the forces of evil are in stark opposition. Mm -hmm. They are in a kind of constant battle. Mm -hmm. The hope is only going to ultimately be effectuated by God and the resolution of this kind of cosmic battle that plays out. It's not only taking place in the cosmic realm, it's playing out 
in the world as we know it and that our senses deceive us the people who seem to be powerful in our world may not actually be powerful from god's perspective and so um part of what the author of revelation does is by painting uh forces of evil as monstrous by talking about babylon um which is meant to be a kind of symbol for this great empire this great anti-god empire mm -hmm. that um you know we I think we know that um, that Babylon was responsible for destroying Jerusalem's first temple. Um, and so it's to be equated with Rome. And that's part of why we think this happens later in the 90s, because it seems that the equation of Babylon to Rome is only um, fulfilled when Rome then destroys Jerusalem's second temple. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, and Domitian, the emperor who we think this was written during, is the third in the line of the Flavian Empire uh, emperors, and his older brother is the one who Titus, who destroyed the temple. So um, there's a lot of connections between the leadership in Rome and the the visceral and real destruction of Israel's way of worshiping God. Mm -hmm. And for Christians, those ties are still very tight at this time. And so this is absolutely um, a grave loss for mm -hmm. John and for John's readers, mm -hmm. even as they're in Asia Minor, probably had never been to the temple, you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But symbolically, these anti-God forces are are alive. And so when, when Christians, when readers of Apocalypse look at their world, they are given this sort of new lens for understanding, wow, it looks like evils prevailing. It looks like Rome is ultimate. It looks like these beasts are the be all and end all. And by declaring, even with violent language, um, the destruction of these forces that rally against God, um, and sometimes speaking of it in the past tense, as if it's already been done, right? Rome is going strong. And then we have a chapter of Revelation that is like singing the praise of its fall mm -hmm. as if it's already been accomplished. Right. And so um, this is a source of encouragement to keep on keeping on, remain faithful. It mm -hmm. may look like your side is losing, but in fact, God will triumph. And so mm -hmm. um, I think we need to read absolutely um, in step with Old Testament imagery, recognizing that this scripture has been meaningful for a long period of time. And so, and to sit lightly with our interpretations mm -hmm. then, right? Rather than pinning down like, oh, I know who this beast is, to try something out for size and to recognize the limitations of our own knowledge. And, um, oh, there's one other thing I was going to say. Um, hmm, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I, I actually came to it, if I, if I may. Yeah. Um, part of what Revelation says, it's unveiling. And I think we've gotten very confused. You hear it in the language we use, and I haven't heard you use it, obviously. But um, Christians often call this book Revelations. We've confused the multiple visions with the point of this book. And Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so if the message about Christ that we read in Revelation is one of like, Jesus is back this time with a vengeance, watch out. Like if this Jesus is completely unrecognizable from the way that we confess him in the gospels or in the epistles, then we're reading it wrong time to start over. That's my ultimate um, guide is that if, if we don't recognize who God is 
through the lens of Jesus Christ when we're reading this book and we're doing it wrong. Ah, yeah. This is meant to point us to Jesus. I'm glad that came back. That's, that's really great. Yes. And, and, but something else you said reminded, you know, you talked about, okay, there's this battle going on and God is winning. And, and we have been, had this uh, working definition of hope for this series that says, hope is the conviction that despite ones, despite our present circumstances, the future will in some meaningful sense be better than, than the present. And, and uh, so, but we're talking about the need to act on that conviction. And sometimes it seems as if we can read it as if the hope is we just have to wait for God to come yeah. and we just sit still yeah. because we, we've got Jesus. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, so how would you frame that, fixing that, uh, you know, what is the hope of Revelation really? Yeah. Yeah. The hope. So I, when I was mulling this over, it's hard to narrow it down, right? But I, um, I had three sort of points, and we'll see if I get there. But I think you're absolutely right that um, in Revelation, there's a question of allegiance going on. And so part of um, what it looks like to be, you know, a good spouse, for instance, let's use an example that lots of us can relate to, is not just the lip service, just not like, well, I've got this ring on my finger, so it's all done. But there are ways in which I live into that commitment, mm. even when it's tough every day. There are ways in which I show up as a spouse. Mm. And so the question of allegiance, like who really is Lord, rings throughout the pages of Revelation. The answer is clear uh, from Revelation's perspective, God wins. And I think part of the call to the seven churches, to us today, uh, wherever we find ourselves is, are we living in a way that shows that we are part of this kingdom that ultimately triumphs? Mm -hmm. Or are we benefiting from, whether economically, socially, religiously, uh, in some material way, are we really living into these anti-God powers that are as much at work in our world today as they were under Emperor Domitian? And so um, this call to persistence is in the face of suffering to just keep going. Um, but for those of us that don't find ourselves in a place of suffering, we really do need to ask like, is, is the ultimate Lord of our life God? Is it the slain lamb, the lamb who actively, I, I mean, this is what victory looks like. So often we like to take our definition of victory and impose it on revelation. But the way that victory is shown in, in revelation is the triumph of a lamb that was slaughtered and yet stands and lives. That's how Jesus is imaged. So am I living my life in this self-giving, self-emptying way that is in, um, in step mm -hmm. with that lamb who was slain? Or am I a lot more like Babylon? Am I living in ways where power is exercised, where privilege is exercised mm -hmm. in ways that look a lot more like the villains of the story? And they're very obvious villains, right? They're dragons, they're beasts. Like no, Revelation pulls no punches, right? You know who the bad guys are. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, if we're not willing to ask the question when we encounter Revelation, like, wait, am I, is it possible that I'm actually on the side of Babylon? Then we're, we're missing the point that was posed to the original audience and to us. So that, that's one of the things. Um, I think another thing, particularly for um, survivors of violence or of abuse, um, one of the things that Revelation shows pretty poignantly is that um, 
evildoers don't get away with it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that makes those of us who are comfortable, uh, makes us really uncomfortable. Like, oh, why do you have to talk about all that blood? Or, oh, it sounds so violent. It unsettles a life that that seems so so polished and peaceful. But for those who are in the midst of suffering, who really know what pain is, they're not surprised by violence. This is the stuff of, of daily life. This is the stuff of their traumatic memories and having it acknowledged and seen on the pages of scripture and to know that there is, um, there is judgment for that. That's part of the good news that your pain is not for nothing mm-hmm. and that it's not outside of the realm of God's imagination and knowledge mm-hmm. and that God wants to deal with that. Um, and I think the third is that like hope is absolutely warranted, um, but it's not a hope of escape. Mm. It's not a hope of being taken out of these circumstances, but instead when we get to the end of Revelation, the hope is that, guess what? In the midst of this brokenness, God brings renewal and newness and then God comes to dwell with us. And so if our message for what heaven is, is about getting out of here, like forget this place, then we're missing the hope of revelation in which God is able to accomplish something yeah. mighty that only God can do. Yeah. My word. I, I, so I think I could keep asking questions for a long, long time. Ooh, and I could keep <laughs> talking. <laughs> and it, but well, we're, you know, we're hoping as we get through this, that we can actually go forward on that class that we were. Oh, would love to. And, um, but I am just so grateful for this. And um, very, uh, for me, I probably fall into that realm of, those who stayed away from it too, you know, just because other than reading it uh, as a teenager and all the fantastical things I interpreted into it, uh, you know, it's just been one of those books where it's going, I think we spend too much time in this, uh, the doom, you know, and that, you know, I like the Lord of the Rings reference, thou shalt not pass. So thank you. So I'm going to, I'm going to end our interview here, but thank you so, so much for this. Awesome. Uh, Thank you. I'm honored. Thanks. So uh, Wednesday night, uh, there was a lot packed into that. This video will be back up uh, shortly uh, on our website. And and maybe you didn't take notes and now you regret that. But you might want to do that and then uh, send us an email to Megan, uh, to the, our church office, to sign up to get uh, login credentials for our Zoom webinar at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. Because I think there's a lot of things that were introduced there that I think you may want to ask questions about and get more familiar as we engage the real hope that is in uh, the end of Revelation. This final book is so hopeful when we recognize how to read it aright. So, uh, so uh, sign up for that and let's, uh, let's conclude with our final song.